0: This is the Drummers Resource podcast, session 332, and you're listening to the Daniel Glass show only on Drummers Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you got to add some of the little tricks. Ah. Uh, uh, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's the Daniel Glass show on Drummers Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, Daniel Glass, back for another episode of the Daniel Glass Show here on the Drummer's Resource Podcasting Network. And hope you're all doing great today. Today's show, we are going to be talking about form. Now before you turn off this podcast and run away And go, God, form, what the heck's he talking about? I wanna hear about, you know, triple paradiddle combinations between my kick and snare, and I wanna hear about gospel chops, and I wanna hear stories about the road and debauchery. You know, form, ugh. Let me just say that you're absolutely right. You know, concepts that I'm gonna address today, which sort of the subsets of form that I'm gonna be talking about, posture, grip, working on a practice pad, these are all things that are, you know, It's sort of like when you're a kid and, you know, back in the old days you were supposed to take cod liver oil. You know, it wasn't necessarily the most pleasant experience, yet you knew it was good for you. Your mother told you it was good for you. So, again, these concepts, you've heard your whole life, they're good for you, so you should do them. But nobody really wants to spend all that much time thinking about them. So what I'm going to do today is lay out some very, very specific reasons and some very specific, you know, showing concrete examples as to why these concepts form, posture, grip, how we hold the stick, how we sit, how we present our physical body in nature before we get to playing a paradiddle is so important and can make such a huge difference in what we do as musicians, really, as performers. And of course, you know, these same concepts will hold true for dancers, for weightlifters, for martial artists. Drummers are not any different than any sort of activity where you use your body, you train your body to do very specific kinds of things. So what is the big deal, anyway, about all these things? Why is it so important to learn these things. You know, why can't we just pick up the sticks and go, right? So I'm going to begin this podcast by bringing in some historical perspective, which is, of course, something that I always like to do. And often, for people who haven't thought about what we do as drummers in a long-range historical context, it brings up some aha moments, and we can kind of go, oh yeah, yeah, I guess, you know, never really thought about it that way. So let's take a little trip back into, let's say, the early 1960s. Now, prior to the 1960s, the way that music was made, the way that drummers learned in order to make music, was that there was sort of what Steve Smith... Steve, Steve and I have had a lot of conversations about this. Obviously, you know, Steve is a big student of history, like myself, and a few years ago, he and I worked on this project, The Roots of Rock Drumming, together, and we really philosophically chewed on a lot of interesting concepts. And one of the concepts that that Steve brought out is that the way that we used to learn, in in essence, what we do as drummers, we are craftspeople, right? In other words, if you want to be a great cabinet maker, the best way to learn to do that is to go study with a master cabinet maker and apprentice yourself. If you want to be a great sushi chef, you have to apprentice yourself, which means... You go to this person, you humble yourself, whatever you think you know or you don't know, you sort of take a leap of faith that this person is called a master because they've spent years developing this craft. And you're going to say, All right, I'm going to put what I think is the way to do this aside and learn what this person has to teach me. And ideally, eventually, the student, the apprentice, evolves goes out into the world, takes what they've learned, does it their own way, and becomes the master. But when you are the apprentice, what you're often working on is form. Traditionally, back in the day, most drum students learned from their teachers and then taught their students in this manner, the process of education. You would go to a teacher and you would study. You'd go to a school, you would study. And everyone sort of did it in the same way. They worked on a pad they worked on developing hand technique. They worked on rudiments. They worked on developing consistency in their playing, a sound. And generally, if you wanted to progress to jazz or later in the 1950s to rock, you still had to go through these fundamental steps. You had to learn your rudiments. You had to learn classical training. It was a very sort of formalized way of study, and everyone agreed this is the way to do it, for better or for worse. Now, of course, you, you had certain students that had more aptitude, that worked harder, and developed and became, you know, the greats. Everybody else was everybody else, kind of like it is today. You know, some people truly become masters, and most other people, most of the rest of us, we just get to whatever level we get to, and it's not really necessarily our highest priority, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, introducing the dawn of rock and roll. Now, what happens in the dawn of rock and roll is that something influences that master-apprentice relationship. First of all, again, I'm putting no value judgments on this, but what happens is rock becomes popular, and rock is a very populist kind of a music. For the first time, young people, and there was this new generation in the 1950s and 60s called the baby boom generation, and they saw music as something that you didn't need to go through these formal steps to get there, beginning with people like Elvis and Buddy Holly, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, moving up to the Beatles, say, in the, you know, the British invasion, 1960s. Kids are seeing these artists who are now writing their own songs, playing their own parts on the record. It was a very different way than it had been in the past. Before you would have an artist, they would, say, sing the song, and then you'd have musicians, and they were trained as musicians. They would perform the song, and the arrangement would be done by a trained arranger who would arrange the song and there were all these divisions of labor. Now, with the advent of rock and roll, anybody can do this. And that's very exciting because it opened the doors. Suddenly young kids are looking at the Beatles and going, "Man, I could pick up a guitar tomorrow, learn three chords, and I'm good to go because I can, you know, they're successful doing it, I can be successful doing it." So, while this was a good thing in its way, it sort of democratized who could be a musician. Now you didn't need to go to the teacher anymore. You didn't need to go to the conservatory. You didn't need to spend years of lessons. You just learned the three chords and wrote a pop song and and you were rewarded for that because that's the turn the world took, okay? But what ended up happening, particularly with drummers, is that we began to lose touch with this master apprentice way of learning. And as rock and roll progressed and as recording progressed and as live performance progressed, certain things began to happen with drummers that began to sort of twist and change that relationship. For example, music got loud. (laughs) With rock, music got loud. Amps got bigger. Drums got bigger. People started hitting a lot harder. You also, at the same time, had the advent of an explosion of technology. So, whereas before, you had to be able to have the skills to nail the tune in one, two, or three takes. There was no way to edit. There was no way to, to do overdubs. As recording progresses, now engineers can participate more in the recording process. So what the Beatles did, how they revolutionized things, and we're going to do... I'm really excited. We're going to do an upcoming podcast here. I'm going to do a show on Ringo and the Beatles and that whole thing. We're going to dig de- deconstruct Ringo, I guess you could say. But as they... Did their thing and and recording evolved. The Beatles were the first band that really used a studio as a laboratory. Instead of the studio functioning as, all right, let's get in, in three hours, let's record, tour, just capture what the band does live. Now we're the biggest band in the world, we have an unlimited budget, and we don't want to tour anymore, so we're going to go in the studio and we're just going to take our time, and we're going to start messing with everything. And so the Beatles pioneer and invent a lot of these techniques, overdubbing and things like that, even with very primitive recording materials that they had. And music starts to change. People start to realize, wow, you could use the studio to create these amazing things. And, of course, Ringo starts taking, you know, with the help of George Martin and in in the exploration of coming up with new sounds in the service of using the studio as a lab, the drums are part of that process as well. So they take the bottom heads off. Really the first time that the bottom heads come off of the toms. Front head comes off the bass drum. Pillow inside the bass drum. Ringo, they went for this very muffled, kind of dead, thuddy sound, which, by the way, would become the drum sound that was used in the 1970s. Towels go onto the toms. You know, so suddenly we realize as a culture the power of the recording engineer within the process. The engineer is almost another instrument, another player in what's going on. And while again, that's an amazing thing, what ends up happening is that drummers begin to seed their power, seed their understanding of their instrument to the engineer. And this doesn't just happen in the studio. This happens in a live performance setting. So now rock and roll music's very loud. The venues have gotten much bigger. You know, the Beatles, again, are the first ones to play in stadiums. Now arenas and stadiums and large halls become the places where rock music is performed. And so now you've got a front of house guy. And he's like, well, you know, if we just deaden the sound of your drum, I'll be able to add reverb out front. I'll be able to EQ your drums to sound the way you want. Drummer goes, all right, cool. By the way, I didn't really take lessons because I saw Ringo. It didn't look like he took a lot of lessons. So I just sort of hit the drums however I want. Doesn't matter because whether I'm in the studio or whether I'm playing in a performance now, there's a mic on my drum and the engineer is going to take care of that sound. So what happens after generation upon generation upon generation of drummers go through this process? And then those drummers become teachers is that we collectively as drummers really have lost a certain connection with our instrument. We have given away our power, given away our control to create a sound. In the olden days, it was necessary for a drummer to know how to tune, for a drummer to know how to hit with a certain amount of consistency to either fill up a room where there was no microphones or play more dynamically because other instruments had no amplification, and they would be blown away by the loudness of the drums, and you had to have some control over your form, over your grip, over how you played. You had to know how to play dynamically. You know the old joke, right? You ask a drummer, hey, can you play with more dynamics? And he says, dynamics? I'm playing as loud as I can. So, you know, most drummers today, sadly, don't know how to tune their drums. Wouldn't even know they can tweak around with the the, the the tuning key on the tension rods, but don't really know what they're going for or how to get a sound. And of course, the drum companies went along with this process. I remember when the pinstripe heads in the 1970s, of course, were the most famous pinstripe heads, they were two ply heads with this layer of oil in between. And when you put those things on, they muffled the sound of the drum, took out all of the frequencies and overtones so that literally you could hand a monkey a tuning key and they could sort of randomly put the head on and the head was still going to sound good. So this only added to drummers sort of saying, well, fine, you know, I don't really need to know how to tune my drums. And of course, the louder everything got, the more that the idea of understanding how to have a great grip, how to set up, how to strike a surface in order to get a good sound out of that surface that became a moot point, right? Because who cares if the engineer is going to take care of the sound out front if this to dual ply head is going to, you know, get rid of any overtone, then it doesn't really matter how hard or how I strike the drum. If every time I hit it 10 times in a row each time is different because you know, the those sounds are going to uh, just be taken care of in the mix and, you know, fix it in the mix, right? There was no such thing as fix it in the mix prior to the 1960s. And by the time we get to the seventies, it becomes all about fixing in the mix. Now, a lot of drummers still go either get lucky or seek out the information to be able to create a great sound. But unfortunately, you know, to quote, my, my former teacher and very wise philosopher, Freddie Gruber, if you don't know the difference, how can you know the difference, right? And what that really means is if you don't know what you're going for, how can you know what to do to get there if you don't know where there is, right? So here's the situation that we, that we are faced with today. When a drummer, say a drummer goes for lessons, more than likely, they, he doesn't work on grip maybe shows you, well, this is how you hold the sticks. But there's not much more conversation beyond that. More than likely, the drummer immediately goes to a drum set, not a practice pad. And immediately, what, what we're working on in lessons is, you know, here's how you play a rock groove. Here's how you play a jazz groove. Here's how you play a Latin groove. Here's how you play these kinds of chops. And we go right to four-limb coordination and all of that. And nary a thought is given to form. Now, I understand that in many cases, teachers are trying to keep their students entertained. And so, well, gosh, if we sit there and here's how you hold the stick and a pad and, you know, this kind of stuff, uh, it's, you know, the kid's going to get bored. This is the great fear of drum teachers today. Or, well, how can I keep my student entertained because they can find all this stuff on YouTube? And what am I going to do as a teacher that will separate me so that they don't just watch free videos and, you know, learn the drums that way. So, you know, this is sort of the world that we live in, and it's really sad because I think that drummers do themselves a disservice or we have really lost something by kind of losing touch with this art form. And again, you know, I I invoke Freddie a lot in my own teaching with my students and when I, you know, discuss his uh, impact on me, uh, but... I really feel that when I went to to Freddie, it was like going to Planet Yoda. I was exposed to, you know, sort of a a grumpy, shriveled old man who spoke in backward sentences and riddles. It was difficult to understand what he was talking about. Uh, But, you know, going to this crazy planet, which was his house out in Tarzana, California, uh, for my lessons and spending hours there, sort of disappearing into this very strange World of Freddie, he was an older single bachelor guy who'd never really had a normal domestic existence, shall we say? So, you know, it. I didn't know what was happening, but at the same time, what I was learning from him was sort of a reconnection to what I I like to call the dark arts, even though they're not dark; they're they're light. But it's sort of the way Luke Skywalker, you know, went to Planet Yoda, didn't know what the hell was going on. Uh, he had no choice. He was on the run, right from the from the empire. But what he learned on planet Yoda was, you know, about the Force, an ancient sort of uh, concept that had been lost. And this is sort of, as a teacher, what I aim to reintroduce to my students because through my work with Freddie and and Bruce Becker and and um, you know, really looking at a lot of these issues, and of course through history and you know, my own way of of taking this material, I am very thrilled when I'm able to sort of reintroduce this big-picture way of thinking to my students. So you might ask, why, right? Why is it important to talk about these issues? Why do you make such a big deal out of this, Daniel? You know, and I would answer with a very simple analogy, and that is that that drum beat that we all learn when we sit down to play. right? Oomt, um, tat, um, cat, kept. Um. Your most basic rock beat, as it were. It's pretty much the first thing anybody learns at their very first lesson on the drum set. Well, you could put a 1,000 drummers down to play that, and then you could put Steve Gad down to play that. And when Steve Gad plays that, there's something amazing that happens because we can all do this beat, we can all play this beat, but when Steve Gadd plays it, everyone in the room stops what they're doing, and people perk their ears up, and they put down, you know, whatever's going on, say to their their person, excuse me, I got uh, check this music out. The power that he transmits in that very simple beat is very different than the power that we, that most of us transmit when, they, when we play that beat. And a couple other analogies we can bring in here, you know, you guys all remember the Peanuts cartoons when you're a kid, the Christmas special and the Great Pumpkin and uh, Snoopy Come Home. And of course, you know, when Snoopy is the featured person and he hears adults talk, you know, they sound, they sound like they have cotton in their mouth and no one can really, I guess when anybody, when anybody, when any of the kids hear the adults talk, the adults don't make any sense. And I think that's, that's, The difference is that when Steve Gadd speaks, he speaks with the clarity of Abraham Lincoln. He speaks with the clarity of a Shakespearean orator. The words he uses cut right to the chase. You understand exactly what he's saying, and it affects you deeply. And when most of the rest of us talk, it's like, you know, if you don't have a sense of grip, if you don't have a sense of posture, a sense of form— then it's like the blind leading the blind down a blind alley. No one's in charge. Everything is going in 10 different directions. And so when most drummers play, what we hear is a sentence that starts in French, and the middle of it's in Chinese, and the ending of it is in Greek. And therefore, we may understand what they're trying to say, but it doesn't impact us. And I think that simple analogy really kind of talks about the importance of form. So while we're talking about form, um, I want to, you know, read a couple of quotes. I think quotes are a really terrific way to, um, you know, sort of think about these things in a greater sense and, and uh, sort of use analogies. Um, And when we're talking about drumming, of course, and we're talking about form, uh, athletics is something that naturally comes to mind, or training, um, because that is what we are doing. Essentially, you know, like I said, drummers, martial artists, dancers, um, and athletes are all doing the same thing. You're getting your body to be in service of something towards a particular goal. So, you know, I, I've, I found this one article, just punched in a few things, uh, and I found an article, Uh, on a website called loving fit. And it's written by a woman named Tatiana called the critical importance of the proper exercise form. So I thought, okay, form. So I'm just going to read you a few quotes from this article and they are absolutely applicable. She's talking about athletics, but it's absolutely applicable to drumming. Proper form is always more important than speed. Proper form of every exercise is the key to training success. The more proper your form is, the more effective your workout will be, and the faster that your body will transform. Again, it's a very simple thought, but it's a very profound thought. And I like to use the analogy. You know, people talk a lot about uh, Malcolm Gladwell and his idea that, you know, mastery is about 10,000 hours, and if you do 10,000 hours, that's what most people do who master whatever it is that they're seeking to master. But if you don't have good form, you could do 10,000 hours and walk away with nothing. And again, this is the, the classic case of, and we've all done this, you go into your practice room and you end up goofing around and jamming and doing a little of this and a little of that and a little of these exercises out of this book and that and whatnot. And you don't really walk away from those two hours being any better at all. So, you know, I did a podcast earlier in in Drummer's Resource, which is a session 184, where I talk about deliberate practice. And I really get into the concept of practice and how we can really streamline our practice to, again, think not so much about physical form, which is what what I'm talking about here, but talking about how to think about what it is we're practicing and how to break things down so that we can truly develop and take ourselves, you know, to that quote-unquote next level, which, you know, everybody promises the next level, and few really deliver in terms of what they're talking about. But I, I really believe that, you know, what Freddie taught, although he didn't use the term deliberate practice, an incredibly magical way to go about approaching and understanding the learning process. Again, I talk about that a lot, so go check out session 184 here on Drummer's Resource, Deliberate Practice. With regard to form, I want to give a couple other quotes that I think are really excellent. Uh, This one is is from the famous author Ayn Rand from her book The Fountainhead, which I read and which really was profound and moved me a lot uh, as a younger person. And This is what she says in that book. The beauty of the human body is that it hasn't a single muscle which doesn't serve its purpose. There's not a line wasted, and that every detail of the human body fits one idea, the idea of a person and the life of a person. So that's kind of an interesting concept, because when it comes to form, Our body moves in a certain way, is designed to exist in space in a certain way, and if we ignore that or we try to uh, put our body into strange uh, positions when we're playing or we ignore what our body naturally does, we will fail. We must understand how the body moves, how the body works, if we are to utilize that proper form into our drumming, because drumming is not divorced from how we spend the rest of our lives moving. So another sort of simple analogy, when when a student would start with Freddie, he would say, okay, stand up and just hang your arm down at your side. No stick, just let it hang and be relaxed. And you'd look at it and you'd say, okay, this is how your arm and hand and wrist should be at the moment of contact with a surface. And he, he, you know, he would say, "This doesn't just apply to, uh, you know, one grip. It's every grip: French, German, traditional, American. Uh, It's whether you're a four mallet player, whether you're a timpani player, whether you're a conga drummer. You know, at the moment that you strike the surface, your hand essentially should be positioned the way it is when it's hanging at your side. Why? Because first of all." you are going to be in a natural state, which means that you'll be as sort of relaxed as you can be. Imagine if you, uh, you know, a lot of drummers play where, and it's hard to talk about this in a podcast because there's not a visual here, but they point their sticks forward. They push their wrists out to the side. Say you're in German grip. They push their wrists out to the side and point the sticks forward. Uh, And I think a lot of times drummers begin and they think that somehow the sticks are supposed to be parallel to each other. So they manipulate and tweak and twist their body into a strange position to get the sticks to do something. Again, this is the exact opposite of the form that we want to be going for. What we want to do is to look at not how the sticks are, but how our body is, and how the sticks sit in our hands, etc. And and then we can then the sticks will naturally do what they are supposed to do. So again, you know, and this this relates to the way we set up our drum set often as well, which is, you know, couldn't be more ass backwards the approach we take, right? So if you don't get with a teacher or you don't think about things like form when you're starting off, then the way most of us set up is based on the way our favorite drummer sets up in videos or, you know, when we see them in concert. Or we sit down at our buddy's drum set and you know, friend's drum set and play, and we just sort of, when we get ours, we do the same thing. Um, We don't realize, or we don't pay any attention to the fact that the drum set must be customized to how we sit, to how we naturally move, that where the placement of the instruments is depends upon where, when I want to go there, how my body naturally moves. So instead, we do it backwards. We set up, you know, with, you know, the cymbals tilted in a certain way or totally flat, The height of everything, everything, everything in a particular way. And we then manipulate or twist our body in order to get there. So, you know, if you were to twist, say, just go back to that example of making your sticks be parallel, if you were to push your wrist out to the side and hold it that way for like four hours, after a while it would start to hurt. And what you're doing is introducing tension into your body. Now, imagine now having to hold your wrist that way and then learn how to play the drums and, you know, learn rudiments and try to develop speed. Um, you know, it's no wonder that most drummers become limited because they're not paying attention to these things. So that is why it's extremely important to talk about form. And the first thing we're going to talk about is is posture. But before we get to posture, I do want to say one more quote that I really find Um, to be very inspirational, and again, makes a lot of sense in the context of this conversation. The quote comes from um, Carlos Fuentes, who's a Mexican philosopher and essayist. And what he says about form, he says, there is no creation without tradition. The new, quote-unquote, is an inflection on a preceding form. Novelty is always a variation on the past. So this really ties in to what I say uh, regarding, you know, understanding our history and tradition as drummers. And that's not just about, you know, how the drum set evolved or who the important players were or what the music sounded like, but also this, this conversation of form and master and apprentice. In other words, if you can't, if you don't know where you come from, how can you know that you're doing something new? How can you depart from something if you don't know what that something is, right? And I remember I had a student come to me once, and we talked a lot about jazz. Of course, I teach a lot of jazz. And uh, a couple of episodes ago, I had a podcast called uh, 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 Keep Calm and Learn to Love Jazz, where I break down jazz and just talk about it in layman's terms and help the average person who may think they can't understand it or think it's over their head or has no interest in it to try to connect them to it. Cause jazz is just a really cool kind of music, like other kinds of music. And it actually is pretty easy to access if you have a way in. So, you know, this I'm teaching this student and he went to one of the most prestigious, i am not going to say which, but he went to one of the most prestigious music schools in the country. You've all heard of it. You all know it. And he said that he had an experience with a teacher there learning jazz where the teacher said, when you play jazz, don't play four on the floor because playing four on the floor is not jazz. Now, this just makes my blood boil because, uh, you know, before there wasn't four on the floor, there was four on the floor. <laughs> and you, how can you play more hipper, more modern styles? Yes, four on the floor kind of went out of favor, I suppose, as a predominant part of a jazz drumming groove with the evolution of bebop in the 1940s and 50s. But that said, every great bebop drummer from Max Roach to Elvin Jones to Tony Williams understood and knew the, what Four on the Floor was and how to play it and utilized it in their drumming. So to completely ignore it and pretend like it didn't exist and rush right to, you know, post-bop way of playing, you're... You have cut the chord to tradition and how can you, you know, you won't be able to play it unless you know what it is you're deviating from, right? So very, very important, you know, quote and point to be made here in talking about form. So let's move on to, dis- to discuss posture in particular. Posture, of course, is how we sit, how high should we sit. A lot of drummers ask this question, again, if you don't go to a teacher and discuss it you may never find out. And you may may find that a couple of years into playing, you have back problems, or you're hunching over, or you're putting your body in very unnatural positions in order to play, or you're holding strange amounts of tension in your body for long periods of time. And we're going to talk more about tension, because tension, of course, is our enemy. But let's just say for basics, and I'm not going to get too much into detail here, because this is more of a general conversation about this issue. But when we sit, a good Starting point. And again, everybody's a little different, but a good starting point is to always think about never being having less than a 90 degree angle anywhere in your body. So you want to have your hips a little bit higher than your knees. In other words, your knees should not be higher than your hips in general. Um, great, you know, analogy there back in the nineteen eighties when or late seventies when Vinnie Kaliuta came in and Ushered in a whole new generation of drumming. He sat very low, and that was the cool thing to do. And over time, that has changed, and now drummers don't sit very low because it led to a lot of back problems and other things because you're not really balanced and supporting your weight properly. You're off balance. Um, And to my students, usually at their first lesson or what lessons when we talk about posture and things, I would send out. An, uh, an email with two links in it of Steve Smith. One from 1985. Steve was already a great legendary drummer. In 1985, he was just about to finish his tenure with Journey. He was becoming a great clinician and you know great fusion player. I mean, you know he was great. But you see him at the drum set and he's sitting really low. His snare drum is tilted in towards him. His toms are very high. His cymbals are way up there. He's playing traditional grip, but the stick is all the way back you know, uh, and he's using a lot of force, downward force, to to get the sound. He's playing very sort of physically. And then I would send a video of Steve Smith in 2000, uh, demonstrating a bunch of Gary Chafee stuff. Gary Chafee was Steve's teacher at, at Berkeley, many other great drummers teacher as well. And in this demonstration, it looks like a totally different drummer. And this is after Steve had, you know, continued his growth, studied for a dozen years or more with Freddie. And Everything is different. I mean, it may as well be a different drummer because he's sitting differently. His drums are arrayed different. His snare is now tilting away from him instead of tilting toward him. Uh, he's above the drums, and the fluidity of his movements and motions and the way he's holding the sticks is more balanced. And of course, the drumming is about a thousand times better. Not that Steve wasn't a great drummer in '85, but he—you know—we all have seen what a master he is, and you know the way that a great drummer with great form moves around the drum set and what they're able to achieve and the speed they're able to, uh, to, to achieve, um, that's what it's all about. That's the reason to think about form. We can't just skip this process, okay? And, we, so we, you know, and by saying skip this process, that means we have to think about how we're sitting. What is our posture? So in our conversation of posture, let me add um, another uh, piece of this, which is the pelvis. Now, the pelvis is that region of our, you know, midsection that goes from sort of the bottom of our waist to the top of our legs. And the the pelvis is like other joints, like your elbow or your wrist. It is a movable, bendable, uh, adjustable part of our body. But unfortunately, many people in general, and particularly men, men tend to be you know, much less flexible than women, um, are unaware of the pelvis and don't know how to use it or take advantage of it to help them in drumming. So, if you imagine how you're sitting when you sit on the couch at night after a long day, and you're rolled back on your pelvis, you're slumped over, or say you're, you know, playing video games. Uh, you know, or wh- whatever activity you do on the couch, and you just slump and slouch and relax and and let it all kind of collapse. Well, if we were to sit at our drum stool that way, uh, our physicality would not be what is required when we play drums. We are warriors, all right. You know, it is up to us as drummers to make sure that. The rest of the band gets their ass kicked, let alone the audience. Everything comes down to us, the creation of rhythm, drive, flow, pulse. I don't care what style you're playing, how loud or soft, that's your job. Say that you were, you know, a professional athlete, football player, and you walked out on the field on Sunday with your head hanging down, you walked really slow, and you kind of had that kind of a vibe going on. You would be thrown off the team. They'd say, dude, what are you doing here? You know we're going into battle, and that's how we have to be as drummers every time we sit down at our drum throne. it's called a throne for a reason, man. we are special. We are royalty. So don't treat the throne like a hollow log, you know what I mean or like your you know like your Barca lounger. you you know, we have to put our body into a certain frame of mind, and that frame of mind is, I am here. I am present. I am ready to rock right now. And the way to get that form, that being up on your pelvis, is to do it every time you you sit down and practice. So you, you know, not practicing one way and then hoping that something else happens on on the gig. You know, and yeah, adrenaline is always there, but it isn't shouldn't just be about adrenaline. It's about preparation, it's about, you know, consistency and it's about having great form, okay? So our our body positioning really affects what our music will sound like. And I work a lot with my students on th- beginning to learn about how they sit, how their pelvis is involved with what's going on, and how they need to become aware of that because a lot of people really are not in touch with that. And I have exercises I do to help work the pelvis through its range of motion and to just uh, think about, you know, body positioning. Now, to continue this conversation of the pelvis, we can really use the pelvis to our advantage. It's not only there as a means to get us set up to be ready to go to battle, right? Um, It can affect our groove. And this is something that I never really thought about, uh, but again, Freddie introduced some ideas and now I really think about these things. Now, what's interesting is if you watch a lot of drummers, say they go to move to a tom or they go up to crash a cymbal. So they're going forward, okay? What happens though is that as their arm goes forward, their body goes backward, you know what I mean? So as you're, it's sort of like as you reach forward, you're counterbalancing your weight by moving your body backward. And what this says to me is that the, the drummer that does this is already off balance, and if we are if we 're slouching on our pelvis and the way we go up to a cymbal is just simply reaching our arm out, well then there 's all that mass hanging there. We have to counterbalance that weight by hanging something off the other side, right, and so we end up going into. Two opposing directions. When really we want the whole body to go up towards that tom or at that symbol. So if we are in touch with the way that the pelvis works, uh, we can go from the pelvis. In other words, let the pelvis do the moving, and everything works that way. Now here's a great analogy: uh, is is boxing. Okay. Now if you're a boxer and you learn how to punch, you know you don't punch like a rock'em sock'em robot. Your arm doesn't just go out from your body and back again, you punch usually from the ground. The punch starts with your feet and moves through your whole body. And although your arm is the thing that is creating the punch, your entire body is setting that up and driving that arm. So when you punch, all of your body is moving in the same direction and therefore your punch has a greater impact, right? It makes sense. Yet, how we move around the drums, there isn't that, that same kind of an understanding or an awareness. We think I'm going to a Tom, it's about my arm. Done. End of story, no more thought about any of it. Well, you know, you wonder why. <laughs> you know, and then if the body's if the arm's going forward and the body's going back, then the neck goes forward, and you wonder why you're you're in pain, you know, why your neck hurts after a while. And we never look in the mirror and we never think about these things. We just blindly blunder ahead without having a conversation with ourselves or seeking these deeper issues because it's like, well, if I just practice my, you know, boogada, boogada, boogada more, I'll somehow get to the level that John Bonham was. And that's it when we think about practice or what's happening in our, in our lives as drummers. And, you know, understandable, we don't necessarily, especially after so many years, we don't even know what questions to ask anymore. We don't even know how to begin to unwind things like injuries or, you know, inability to do things. And a lot of my students come to me after they've been playing for a while, you know, and they've been playing the same way. It's sort of like, you know, go into that practice room and walk away without really ever developing or play in that band year after year and wonder why you can't do those things. And after a while, they get sick of it and they go, you know what, I need an overhaul and I really need to take a look at this. And then they're on the mind frame to break things down and start to kind of address the big picture. And that, my friends, is the, in my opinion, the only way you're going to step things up. Now, I had said we can actually use the pelvis to affect our groove. Now, what do I mean by that? If we're in, in touch with how the pelvis moves and we learn how to punch, say, going to a cymbal crash from the pelvis, moving to a tom, moving around the drums, not just by moving our arms, but moving the body. And of course, all these analogies are, hold true for the feet as well. Because again, a lot of drummers come and they say, you know, when I lift up my right leg, on, or my, my, my left leg on the hi-hat, I fall over. I can't lift my legs. And so, you know, a lot of drummers play heel up. Now, there's nothing wrong with heel up, but, but the problem is if all your weight is balanced on the front of your feet all the time, how do you think that's going to affect your drumming? What that's going to mean is you're always going to be getting to the surface milliseconds early because you're not thinking about how you're setting up that stroke. You're only thinking about landing again on the front of your foot, all the weight at the front to um, to to protect your balance. Because that's the only way you, you know how to balance on the drums. And so um, what ends up happening is when you play that way, you always get milliseconds early on every stroke and your drumming has this nervous quality to it and you don't have a pocket. You don't have that relaxed, open, mile-wide feel of letting things Really, it's letting things fall. And we could talk about that in, a, in another podcast. But to me, the work we do as drummers is about the up and then allowing things to fall. Well, guess what? If you're not balanced on your pelvis, you won't be able to do that. You may be able to do a lot of things as a drummer, but they're not going to have the right sound or the right feel the type of feel that Steve Gatt has, the type of feel that's going to get you hired, the type of feel that is going to put money in your pocket if you're trying to make a living doing this, okay? Um, It's very simple, and yet to fix and change is complicated. Our ego is tied in, you know, I've spent years, what do you mean? I need to go back and do very simple things, blah, blah, blah. And it's tough, it's, it's sometimes for a lot of people, it's a, they're like so happy they found a solution they've been looking for. For a lot of other people, they're like, man, you can't tell me that, you know, I'm not doing this right. So it's, you know, think of it this way. It took you however many years to arrive at where you are now with your current physicality. And especially as you get older, you can't get away with certain things. The body compensates. And maybe we can get away with hammering things out or holding our bodies in certain ways. Eventually, your body is going to start giving you signals. You know, For some people, it happens very early. Uh, holding tension, twisting, bending, off balance, all these kind of things. Uh, for others, you know, it happens later on. But I can guarantee you there's not a drummer out there, even the drummer with the best form, that doesn't eventually run into the physical... Uh, ramifications of how they've been holding their body, their positioning, their balance, their form—you know how they hold the sticks, how they strike the drum. Uh, so, what I'm what I'm saying is, if we can, getting back to the pelvis and finishing up this idea, if we can use the pelvis to move us and help move the entire body to where we want to go, that is going to help us. It also, in terms of groove. Say that I want to play a shuffle, and I want this to be a nice, light kind of a shuffle. So I want to get up on top of the groove. If I get up on my pelvis and get up over the drums, at least philosophically, psychologically thinking, if I put myself in that position, it will help me to play that kind of a groove better more effectively. If I want to lay my groove back and put it in a deeper pocket, I can drop a little into the pelvis and let everything kind of drop. And then it helps me to let my arms and legs drop and to capture that aspect of a groove. And when Freddie first suggested this to me, I was like, this dude is nuts. This does not happen. You cannot do this. But guess what? Over the years, as I've developed a better sense of my own form and more control, he's absolutely 100% right. And a lot of this body physicality stuff I actually learned from my mother, who uh, was a professional dancer for many years and then became got into doing body work. And she eventually did a form of body work called patterning, which is less about manipulation like massage or something, and more about getting you in touch with how your body is positioned and then helping through slow mo- movements and motions to reposition your body so you get a better sense of, of your body. And uh, all the pelvic exercises I use, I learned from my mom. So thanks, mom. Uh, you know, again, the parallels between dancing, drumming, movement, they're all the same. They're all the same. So uh, a couple more thoughts here, and then we will wrap up uh, this podcast. Um, I want to talk about playing on the pad. Now, you know, again... When I was a younger man, I did not, you know, everybody says, well, you should play on the pad, you know, and, you know, it's sort of like, eat your cod, liver oil, like, like we talked about. And you say, well, why? It's disgusting. It's gross. It's boring. It's it's not what I want to do. I want to play the drum set. Why should I spend a lot of time on the pad? So, again, let me address this a little bit more uh, in detail. Um. First of all, if we work on a pad, and I have my students start on a pad, we work on a pad for a while, although depending, we'll get to various parts of the drum set, but uh, Freddie worked on a pad, and it's that traditional master-apprentice concept. If we work on one surface, and in in the case of of how Freddie suggested it and how I suggest it, a flat surface. Don't angle it in any particular way, because what we're going to be doing, what we do on the pad it needs to be a neutral surface that the stick can just rebound off of in a natural way. If we tilt it, you know, regardless of how you actually set up your drum set, if we're just like, say, letting the stick drop onto the head over a balance point, we don't want the stick shooting off in one direction or another. We just want it to come flat down. So with the pad, we can create, first of all, a neutral surface um, that, and it's a one single surface. So we're you know, as soon as we start to add more limbs, then we can't do as good of a job with any one of those limbs. And so, you know, the benefit of a pad in that sense is one surface, one idea, get focused, like deliberate practice, break things down into small pieces and master those as you are on the way to developing, uh, you know, something more sophisticated. Um, I think another aspect of the, of, that's important about the pad related to things like balance and posture is that we can really begin to get a sense of what it means to, you know, how high should the snare drum be? Well, once we're sitting properly at the right height on our throne and our, we've worked on our pelvis and our posture, now our body is in a comfortable and balanced place to start hitting things. So once we're there, if we just have one flat, neutral thing in front of us, we can decide how high or low it should be in order to work comfortably with how our body naturally is, right? So, you know, again, before we, we hit symbols which move and are at angles and drums are at different angles and things are at different heights uh, and feet, you know, let's just have this one neutral surface. Um, Pad work also has to do with creating clarity, consistency, and articulation of sound. Now, any student of mine knows I use these words over and over and over again. Clarity, consistency, articulation. And I think I don't need to explain what I mean by these, but, you know, talking again about Steve Gadd as a great orator or as an Abraham Lincoln of drums, that what his his words His intentions are absolutely crystal clear and powerful. There is a great sense of clarity, consistency, and articulation there. Somebody like Charlie Watts, though, you could make the same case. It seems like it's all sloppy, seems like the time is wavering, yet what Charlie Watts does is he speaks with very clear, consistent way of drumming. It isn't technically advanced, Ringo, not technically advanced, yet we get what they're saying. There is a consistency, a clarity, and an articulation. And go ahead, try to play like Charlie Watts. You may play the same part. I guarantee you it ain't easy to make the groove feel the way that it does when he plays. Ask anybody who's in a Rolling Stones tribute band. I've seen a lot of bad ones. Most of them are bad. Why? Because you can dress up like Charlie Watts, you can get the same drum set, you can, you know, do the same groovy thing where you don't play one of the eighth notes on your hi-hat on two and four. You know, you can imitate, but few can capture the essence. Why? Because it's about the form. How do you capture, you know, the form, his particular way of speaking? And I should say that, you know, there are lots of great drummers out there that have developed their form and do have a great sense of clarity, consistency, and articulation without going to teachers. So it isn't only what I'm saying about going to teachers, but I think there is there needs to be an awareness uh, of form and development of form in, if we're going to say something behind the drums. And I think someone like Charlie Watts, obviously he's saying something. People are listening. What he says matters to people. So however he got there, He got there, and it works. And most of us don't get there, you know, because you can, like I said, that the other thousand guys that play that groove, next to Gad, you see that all the time, and you're like, eh, okay, whatever. He can play next, or she can play, you know? Then Gad, and you're like, oh, this is something unique. So, um, I want to talk about clarity, consistency, and articulation of sound. And I'm going to give you guys a a sonic demonstration right now um, on a an actual practice pad uh, so you can sort of uh, hear what I am talking about. Now I have a practice pad here and I'm going to take the stick and I'm going to clutch it in my hand and I'm going to strike, I'm going to strike this pad. And so listen to the sound. Now I'm going to open my hand up into a nice German grip, which is there's a lot less of me on the pad and listen to this sound. Now, hopefully you can hear this. I can certainly hear it. Closed clutch. Open, nice German grip. So, even if you can't hear the difference, and who knows, maybe you can, maybe you can't. Um, What's important, you know, when I used to go for lessons with Freddie, we would work on a pad. And I would do the exercise, and the pad sounded like a pad. Two, three inches thick, piece of rubber, you know, wood on rubber. I I love, I'm a real feel fanatic, and I think those are great pads for working on practicing because they speak. Because then Freddie would do the same exercise on the pad, and it sounded like he was playing a seven-inch deep snare drum. And I'm like, what is this, what is this guy talking about? What, I mean, how's he doing this? Like, it's a pad. How do I have one sound that sounds thin and weak and inconsistent and when he does the same thing, it's huge. So my point here is that a practice pad is an excellent way to really start to begin to understand creating a sound. I think again in the analogy I used at the beginning of this discussion, um, you know, we forgot collectively as drummers how to make a sound. Now you might say, well, a symbol, a symbol, a symbol. I hit a symbol. If I hit it, you know, if I just tap it, it makes a sound. If I hit it hard, it, it, you know, it makes a sound. These are loud, ringy things. How do I know what a good sound is? Well, good question, right? Because I think a lot of times drummers end up bashing away and they have no idea if they're creating a good sound or not. And for a lot of us, the first time we realize that we're not creating a good sound is when we go into a recording studio and we realize that, like, Every time we hit the snare drum, we're hitting it a different way. Different overtones happen, it sounds different, or our time isn't exactly there, or the toms, I'm playing a fill, and I think it sounds great in my mind, but the microphones, which don't lie, pick it up in a totally different way. And we then begin to listen say, shoot, my sound. How do I get that sound? So a great way to develop your sound without ever having to worry about what it's going to sound like on the drum set is to work on the pad. The pad can speak, and it is amazing what the pad will tell you about the clarity, consistency, and articulation of what you are producing. And this is another reason why form in the, the, you know, in the form of holding the stick setting up and how we either strike the drum or allow the stick to fall on the drum to create a tap and building off of these very basic elements can make an enormous difference when we do get onto the drum set again if we've spent a lot of time on one surface and worked very hard on getting one surface to sing to speak to articulate it will be automatic when we go up to the drums that we will create a good sound. It's a lot harder to go the other way, starting off on the drum set, making lots of noise, and not really knowing what the hell your sound is or isn't like. And sadly, that's the way most of us, you know, play. And that's the way most... And maybe we never get past that point of even knowing that we're not, you know, making a sound. And we go, well, why don't I sound like Steve Gadd when I play this groove? Because your form sucks. (laughs) you know, for lack of a better term. All right, so uh, I think we're coming to the end of things. I did want to try to get into grip, but maybe that is a topic for uh, another session. Um, I will just say that, again, you know, most drummers don't spend any time learning about grip. There are three basic grips, the German grip, which is the hands on top of the sticks, the French grip, which is the thumbs on top of the sticks, and the traditional grip, which, of course, is the traditional style that marching drummers used to play. These grips didn't just materialize yesterday. They have been developed over now centuries, uh, and people were paying an awful lot of attention to how you hold the sticks in these ways, how you strike the drum in these ways to benefit you, to allow you to play relaxed, to play with speed, to play with a natural form in terms of how your arms and hands are positioned. And a lot of thought and you know has gone into this over generation upon generation upon generation. We cannot presume that if we simply pick up a pair of sticks and start playing this kind of groove or that kind of groove, which is, again, how most people take lessons these days, we cannot presume that we are going to make a good sound. Nor will we make a consistent sound. You know, so I've had drummers come and I say, well, play a little for me. So they they play a shuffle. When they play a shuffle, they twist and tweak their hands this way. When they play a rock groove, they twist and tweak their hand that way, and the stick's in their hand, and it's not in their hand, and it's, it's loose in their hand on one side. On the other side, it's clutched in their hand like a claw. What are you doing? How do you expect to have a consistent sound when you have no idea the elements and basics of your grip, right? So, you know, the form as it relates to grip And I, by the way, dislike the term grip because it implies that we are supposed to clutch the stick like a club. The reality is that the less of us touching the stick, the better. The more that we can through very subtle movements and very sort of um, focused ways of, of holding the stick, the more we are in touch with that and the more consistent we are with that, the more we will get out of what we're trying to do. More bang for the buck, I like to say. And I always tell my students, a grip is a grip is a grip. In other words, if you learn a German grip properly, you learn a French grip properly, there is no reason for you to use other grips, you know, or to change how you use these grips depending on how fast you're playing, how slow you're playing, how soft, how loud. That's not what it's about. It's about use the generations of technology and master apprenticeship evolution that went into the creation of these grips. And of course, I should include the American grip now, which is something that Dom Famulero and and other guys talk about, um, which is sort of a hybrid, and there are hybrids and things. But the principles, the physical principles, the physics involved here really come from a long line of tradition, and it's important for us to tap into that. Otherwise, you know, as Freddie would say, how do you know the difference if you don't know the difference? And, you know, a lot of you out there may have listened to this entire podcast and gone, oh, this guy's full of crap. You know, come on. I've been playing all these years and I do a great job. Great. You know, maybe you do. Maybe you don't. <laughs> it's hard to know. But what I know is that most of my students that come to me have been playing for a while. They're unhappy with fundamental issues. They're good drummers. But they are unaware of a lot of these issues that I'm talking about. And it's about lifting the veil, revealing the dark arts, as it were, and, you know, tapping into our history and evolution and these traditions to create clarity, consistency, and articulation. And that must be done at a fundamental level. But what, you know, the, the reverse, and then people say, well, God, you mean i got to throw away everything I've ever learned? No. What you have to do is start slowly, tear everything away, get back to what is the grip? What are the fundamentals of the grip? Where do you, How do you hold the stick in this particular grip? What's the balance point? What's the fulcrum? Let's get to know the pad. Let's get to know our hands. Let's do some very slow exercises to begin to, de- to, to develop a true basis, a true understanding of why a grip is a grip is a grip and how we don't need to change it every two seconds because again we're starting a sentence in one language and finishing it in another if we do that and it's not clear it was not clear what we're doing okay so i'm gonna leave it at that i've had a great time today talking about this conversation i love talking about this stuff i'm kind of a freak for technique and love discussing it and you know the way i teach is not the way everyone teaches there are lots of ways to get to the same conclusion, but what I always like to say is the physics are the physics. Physics, you know, getting a stick to do what you want it to do for the least amount of effort on your part. Generally, there's really only one way to do that, as you you know, or the principles are the same. What the the hinges are, and the levers, and the release mechanisms, and things like that. So um, I welcome your comments. I welcome your thoughts. I welcome your criticisms, your feedback. Um, you know be in touch and uh, of course you can always follow me on my Daniel Glass Drummer Author Educator page on Facebook I post a lot of great videos there and lots of talking about philosophical elements like this Uh, and uh, I hope you uh, took something cool away from this thanks keep swinging and we will see you next time on the Daniel Glass Show